0: The pandemic has brought home to all of us the importance of the public services we sometimes take for granted. Not just the NHS, but schools, local councils, the police and prison service have all faced huge challenges keeping the show on the road. And clear leadership has been crucial to this task. Now, more than ever, our public services need great head teachers, chief constables, great prison governors and hospital directors. But what makes for great leadership in the public sector? How do you make sure your organisation is delivering for the public and not squandering hard-earned taxes? How do you handle a crisis or navigate the complex relationship with an ever-changing government? I'm Justin Russell and I work alongside the justice system as Her Majesty's Chief Inspector of Probation. I've spent my life working with and learning from inspirational leaders who have done all of these things and more. In this special series for Bridges to the Future, I'll be speaking to just some of those who have survived and thrived at the top to find out how they did it and what they can teach you. So join me for a lesson in leadership.
1: This is Bridges to the Future, the Big Ideas podcast, brought to you by the RSA with your host, Justin Russell.
0: My guest today has spent his career helping governments around the world deliver real and irreversible improvements to public services like education and healthcare. He's a founder and chairman of the organisation Delivery Associates and was responsible for establishing the Prime Minister's Delivery Unit in 10 Downing Street from 2001 a model since replicated in many countries around the world. He's also been an advisor to the Football Association and to Team Sky, the elite cycling team. And he's written several books on how governments and individuals can deliver on their ambitions, including How to Run a Government, published in 2015, and Accomplishment, How to Achieve Ambitious and Challenging Things, published earlier this year. His name is Sir Michael Barber. Welcome, Michael. Great to talk to you again. Thank you, Justin. I'm looking forward to the conversation. So this series is about what great leaders in the public sector do, how they set a vision, how they engage with their staff and make sure that people are delivering, and that they're making a real difference. And that third leadership competence, delivering real change for the better, is something that you spent many years thinking about and advising on. So let's jump in with the obvious question. What is the role of leaders in delivery, do you think?
1: Well, it's fundamentally important. As you said in the introduction, I've worked with governments all over the world, including, as you know very well, in the UK. If you can't find the leadership, you can't get ambitious things done. You might be able to keep things ticking over, but if you want ambitious and difficult things, or ambitious and challenging things, as the title of my book says, you do need to find the leadership. And ideally, you want leadership from the political level and leadership from the official level. One or other, maybe you can get something done. If you've got both and they're aligned, your opportunity is huge. So it's fundamental. Without leadership, you can't get ambitious and challenging things done.
0: And in one of your books, there's a lovely quote from, I think it's from Charles I, where you say, there's more to the doing than bidding it be done.
1: Yes. Charles I realised that sadly too late, late in the day. Yes, it was a bit late in the day. It was, uh, not long before he walked out onto the scaffold in Whitehall and had his head chopped off.
0: So in terms of the doing, what what levers do you think leaders have at their disposal? And which ones do you think work the best?
1: I think that obviously it depends on the task, but there's lots of ways of thinking about leadership. So if you're somewhere in Whitehall and you're an official, or you're somewhere in Whitehall and you're a minister, and you've got an ambitious and challenging thing you want to get done, there are several ways of thinking about how you can act on the system you're trying to influence. One is through persuasion, advocacy, advocacy moral purpose at you know just trying to mobilize people behind some mission and that's very important and useful but on its own it's hard to shift a whole system. The second is this is where we use a bit of delivery jargon. You need to map out the delivery chain. You're you're the official in a government department in Whitehall or you're the minister and you want to change the facts on the ground. Let's say you want children in across the country to be able to read better. You've got to influence girls in Wigan and boys in Newcastle and whatever it is. So you've got to connect between you and the ultimate beneficiary, all the links in the chain that can help you influence what goes on. And then you can think about each link in the chain. How do I exert pressure on that link? Pressure so that people realize it's a priority and they're going to be held to account, but also support. What resources do they need to be able to get the job done? So. You map the delivery chain and you think at each level, what's the pressure to deliver and what's the support to enable delivery? That will really help. And then last point is you just got to stick at it. And if you think of those three things, you remember because we were there together in number 10, Jonathan Powell talking about you pull a lever and nothing happens. It's the delivery chain that does connect the levers to the real action. And you've got to think about that. Mm -hmm.
0: And in addition to the delivery chain in your books, you talk about the idea of the guiding coalition, which was a concept coined by John Cotter, which I think you came across in the early 2000s, just before you set up the Prime Minister's Delivery Unit. Yes. Can you tell us a bit about what a, a guiding coalition is?
1: Yes. So John Cotter is a professor at Harvard, and he wrote a book here 20-odd years ago called Leading Change. It's a very, very good, clear, useful book, actually. But he talks... He talks about building management teams, but leave that aside. Just forget for a moment about management teams. He talks about the guiding coalition as a separate thing. And basically, the the guiding coalition is the answer to this question. Who are the seven to 10 people on whom you depend to get this job done? So if I go back to my time in the Department for Education before I came to work with you in, in number 10... The guiding coalition to get children to read and write and do maths better in primary schools consisted of David Blunkett, the Secretary of State for Education, Estelle Morris, the Minister of State, David Miliband, head of the Number 10 Policy Unit, later during that first term, Andrew Adonis joining, the Chief Inspector of Schools, Chris Woodhead, myself, the new Director of General of Schools that we appointed, Permanent Secretary occasionally. And once you've got that group of people together and they all understood A that this was a priority, B, how we were going to pursue it, and C how they'd explain it to their constituency. So Michael Bichard could go to the permanent secretary's gathering and say this is what we're doing on literacy and numeracy. I could speak to groups of head teachers or chief education officers. David Blunkett could answer a question in Parliament. Chris Woodhead could get his inspectors lined up behind the strategy. And actually one person I should have mentioned is Connor Ryan who is briefing the media. So what Connor said to the leader writer of the Times would be consistent with what David said, with what I said, with what Michael Bichard said. And you get that shared understanding of what the task is and how you're going about it. It just speeds everything up. Whereas when things are going wrong, and we've all seen this in in governments, where those seven to 10 people are all singing from slightly different hymn sheets, not quite aligned, or even worse, arguing with each other, it's very hard to get anything done. You might remember transport in the first the railways, in particular in the first Blair term, was absolutely sort of chaotic, conflicting egos, all advocating their agency, but none of them taking seriously the role of actually delivering performance in railway punctuality, for example.
0: And how do you link this guiding coalition of seven to 10 people with the much broader delivery chain how do you win the hearts and minds of the the head teachers and the frontline classroom staff for example
1: yeah and just to reinforce the point that you're making and this applies to crime reduction or changes in the health service as well as to education i've just used that as an example but i think first of all if you're going to do something at reasonable pace and major scale across our whole country you do need that guiding coalition but you do need to build out from there and hearts and minds is important but you're very unlikely with a big controversial change to win all the hearts and minds before you get started. So you get the guiding coalition, you get started, and then you build commitment as you go. And you think about that along the delivery chain. So I remember thinking about literacy and numeracy in primary schools. How will teachers react to this? You know, it's 1997, there's a new government, they're telling them, this is how we think you should teach reading and writing. They think they've known how to teach reading and writing for all of their careers. So I was trying to think how you would change the mindset over a period of time. So you can guess, you can anticipate how a workforce will respond. And I had sort of four stages. Stage one, they would say, well, I don't think the government should be telling us how to teach reading and writing. And stage two, they'd be saying, I still don't think they should be telling us what to do, but I must admit the training's good. And then stage three would be, actually, I never thought I'd hear myself say this, but it's beginning to work in my classroom. And then stage four would be, why didn't we do this years ago? Now, that turned out to be optimistic. But you get the idea of anticipating the change in culture and then acting. And if you think back on that example, but it would apply to what you and I and others did with street crime in the police and others, you've got to, whatever you do, you've got to do it really well so that the training's got to be excellent. The quality of the data's got to be excellent. People have got to say, wow. They're really serious about this. In my book that you mentioned just in Accomplishment, you mentioned my work with the FA, there's a bit in there about Gareth Southgate and the detail in which he goes into preparation for something. And then he says, and that detail communicates itself to the whole squad that we're absolutely serious about winning matches and hopefully one-day tournaments. And then the hearts and minds come with you if they can see that A, you're serious, B, you're going to keep at it, And see, you're going to help them do the job, even if you're putting pressure on them.
0: And I think you say in the book that winning the hearts and minds isn't separate to making the change. No. You win the hearts and minds by making the change. Yes. And my wife was a primary school teacher in London in the early 2000s and became a literacy consultant for Hackney Council, which I think was one of the posts that was created to deliver your strategy. Yes. That's exactly the process that she went through. She did the training. She went to the conferences. She became a... A convert and it, w- it was an interesting example, yeah
1: yes, and and you and I, in the Blair second term saw that happen with street crime and police and the health service reforms in the second term of hitting the waiting times targets on routine operations and on a and e again there's lots of opposition at the beginning, but once people see that you really mean to do it and that you 're doing it properly, they do come with you because actually in the end people public servants like it when they're more successful it's not surprising they're human beings but at the beginning they can't imagine that it could be transformed and then as they see it transforming they begin to believe wow this is this is this is what i came into public service to do how hands-on
0: do you think leaders should be in relation to delivery You, you mentioned that we both work for tony blair in the early 2000s, and he was incredibly into the detail sometimes. I think in one of your books, you give the example of a, a four- or five-hour meeting in February 2003, which I also happened to be at, when he cleared his entire diary on a Monday morning to go through the whole of the asylum process in forensic detail to understand it how, exactly how unfounded asylum claims could be reduced, and, and, and more broadly, I had this voracious appetite for the performance reports and data that you were providing him with. Is there a danger sometimes of leaders getting too much into the weeds, do you think?
1: There can be. The bigger danger, though, is them believing what you read in some business books or strategy books, that leaders do strategy and other people do the detail. That That's definitely a mistake. But you equally, you can overdo the detail and get so bogged down that you never get anything done. That's why it took Philip II 15 years to plan the Spanish Armada, because he just was obsessed with every single detail there is a a balance to be struck and I think in that case Tony Blair was very good like he by then he was an experienced prime minister he'd been prime minister for six years or so he had a kind of sense of when something wasn't quite right that particular example he had called me on the Saturday morning I was barely up on a Saturday morning when the phone rang and number 10 switchboard here I've got the prime minister for you and you think oh that's nice 8:50 on Saturday morning. But anyway, then he'd been reading my report on the data. He said, "This isn't quite right. We've got to do something about it." What the Home Office doing? And then, not only did he clear his diary for the Monday morning on the on the Sunday, he'd read the Human Rights Convention, a whole lot of other documents that were in some way related to asylum. So he was absolutely on top of the issues and the data. And you know, he had in, in his past been a lawyer, and it was a very sort of forensic lawyer like performance. So I do think sometimes you need to get on top of the detail and really drill down. But then once you've got it, the system working, and if you remember, we then did get that illegal asylum seeker numbers right down quite significantly in the next six months because we had been through the system and he had helped us all identify the flaws. And then we were all away working on them. And then as he saw the data coming into line with the planned trajectory, he began to ease off and he would just wait for the the two monthly routine stock take to come around and see if it was okay. But yes, I think leaders do need to get on top of detail. And if you're a senior civil servant, you can't just delegate all that stuff. You do actually need to to know, you need to have enough knowledge to know where you might need to intervene.
0: And I think some of his secretaries of state probably found it quite challenging. He he quite often ended up knowing a lot more about the detail of an issue than his own cabinet ministers, and it, it kept them on their toes,
1: I think, maybe as well as the, yeah. the civil servants. It's what happens when, I mean, some of that is about length of time in government. If you're you know, the first term, particularly if you're a prime minister who's never been a minister before, you know less than your secretary of state. But by the second term, and you've had a couple of reshuffles, you actually know more than your ministers, certainly when they're fairly newly appointed, and you become more authoritative. At that point, you've got to avoid just getting into, you've got to empower them while using your knowledge effectively to challenge them. I've seen the same with Justin Trudeau in Canada. I worked with him through his first term, um, the story also told in, in Accomplishment. And it, by the end of it, he was really on top of things and there'd been a few reshuffles. And now he's still there and he's still driving away on some of those things. So the prime ministers get more experience and they need to use that knowledge and their position with the right combination of challenge and humility. Otherwise, they just upset people.
0: And in addition to those one-off deep dives into particular issues, the other routine that you built into his diary were these very regular stock takes on the top 10 priorities, I think it, it was, where relevant cabinet ministers would be brought around the table and you would go through the numbers. And that, that could happen on a very regular basis. Is that another part of how they can drive delivery, do you think?
1: Yes. The big thing with being a prime minister anywhere in all, and especially in Britain, is you could easily fill every day of your time in office dealing with the latest crisis and the latest media storm or whatever it might be. If you think of what Boris Johnson's been through, then without wishing to be judgmental, just think about those things and the the extent to which he has actually spent time on driving improvement on jobs and skills or driving improvement in the public services, both of which are priorities for him. He's just distracted all the time. And if you are a prime minister, so you do have to do those things. There's, there's no way away from So what you need is a countervailing process that builds routines into your diary. Otherwise, your diary just gets filled with the crises. And that's what we didn't even think about it as an innovation at the time. But it turns out to have been a big innovation that, that Tony Blair and I and colleagues such as yourselves put in place was his diary had six meetings a year on home office things, all to do with reducing crime at that time six meetings a year on education, all on schools, six meetings a year on health, and so on. And they're coming round routinely. So instead of having to summon a minister when he reads a story in the paper about something going wrong, he knows he's got a stock take coming up. He knows that after the stock take, the delivery unit is tracking that down and making sure that something gets done. And we in the delivery unit, it was a wonderful thing to having these routines, because then you could go to the Department of Health and say, well, you heard your Secretary of State agree with the Prime Minister, now let's get it done before the next stock date, which is only seven weeks away. Or some problem arises that you didn't know about and you say, we've got six weeks till the next stock date, let's try and solve it before then. It'd be much better to go to the Prime Minister and the Secretary of State and say, we've solved this problem and this is how. But either way, we can make progress and say, there are two ways of solving it, which should we choose? to get the routines make a huge difference to the effectiveness of a prime minister. I've seen it work for Justin Trudeau, for the premier of New South Wales, for the chief minister of Punjab, Pakistan. Just building the routine is fundamental. You have to make sure that in the routine meetings, the stock takes, you have the right nature of debate. It's not about yelling at people and banging the table. And it's not about trying to allocate blame. It's about trying to solve problems and keep the consistency and you
0: talk in your books about irreversibility and how you can deliver changes and improvements that stick and are sustained, and say that it, that in turn relies on on sustained long-term leadership. And all of the examples you've given there are, are leaders who stayed in post for certainly more than one term, sometimes two or three terms. Given that it takes a while to learn how, how to lead, how to be a prime minister, how long Do you need to be in post, do you think, for that irreversibility to to stick?
1: It's a great question. I'll come to it. I just want to say one more thing about the previous discussion about routines, because although I used examples of being a prime minister, actually senior officials can build routines in the way they review progress. So can individual cabinet ministers or ministers of state or other ministers. So the idea that if you've got a handful of priorities, you use routines to drive progress on them is... Fundamentally, it even helped me run a half marathon and cycle a fast time trial. So that sense of building a routine is not just for prime ministers. It's for anybody who wants to get big things done because it makes you consistent in pursuit of your priorities. On the question of irreversibility, look, irreversibility is a very high bar, actually. And it's often with these big public service reforms, it takes a while. Some things are more amenable. It's interesting, for, for example, when I look back at the reforms in relation to gay marriage, for example, you pass a law and suddenly you find the whole culture has changed. It's, you know, widely accepted now. There may be the the odd person stuck in the the past, but some of those social changes actually take effect quite quickly, banning smoking indoors in pubs, for example. You know, change from one day to the next. So some things can be done and people just seem to think, well, that is actually better and you get on with it. But some of the public service reforms, like reducing crime or the other kinds of things we've been talking about, health, waiting times, school test results, and so on, they do take longer. And to make them irreversible, you've got to achieve three things. You've got to get the results to show that whatever it is that's working. You've got to change the culture, which means winning hearts and minds so that people actually think this is much better Than what went before, and you've got to change the structure of the system so that the various incentives in the system reinforce the new normal. And if you can get those three things in place, even if there are changes of political leadership, there's a good chance that you will get irreversibility. The health waiting times that uh, were achieved in the second term, the Blair second term, which were historic—you know, getting waiting times down to 18 weeks for routine operations and four-hour A and E wait—they lasted. A good 10 years. But by then, two things were weighing against them. One was the Lansley 2011 legislation, which actually broke all the delivery chains quite consciously, actually. And then austerity. And you put those two things together and suddenly it became harder. But they were potentially irreversible. And it's not just about changes of leader. But I do. I think you, if you think about... What have I done to make sure the results are there? What have I done to change the structure and what have I done to change the culture? And if you get those three things right, there's a good chance it'll be irreversible. I mean, you've mentioned civil servants. In in your
0: books, you you tend to focus on elected leaders rather than civil servants or chief executives. Do the sorts of major improvement programmes you're talking about always have to be driven by politicians if they're going to have an impact? Are civil servants actually capable of showing the same ambition or drive, do we give them the permission to do this? There's a, there's another lovely quote in one of your books from George Bernard Shaw that all progress depends on the unreasonable man, I think you say. Um, yes, Are civil servants just too reasonable, do you well, think? Well, to- you
1: know, a, there are some elements of civil service culture that are a bit too reasonable, and, you know, I, I always like that. Um, it's a good joke. It's a bit harsh, but it's a good joke where they, what do the civil servants chant on a demonstration? They chant, what do we want procrastination. When do we want it? Next week. But there's an element of that and people recognize it and you see it mocked in various television programs that deal with these things. But the truth is civil servants can make an enormous difference and there are fantastic civil servants within the British civil service. I've worked in literally dozens of governments around the world. The British civil service is as good as any civil service I've come across and it's not perfect, but there are some great civil servants leading great programs. And there are some great chief executives of agencies who can make an enormous difference. And they can make an enormous difference, even if they haven't got ministerial support. But if they get a fair wind and ministerial backing, they can be transformative. If I if I think of the people who, going back to literacy and numeracy, the guy who ran the National Literacy Strategy, answerable to me, was a guy called John Stannard, who was a completely heroic guy, the woman who ran the math strategy in parallel called Anita Straker, absolutely fantastic. And we could both list countless really top class civil servants who make an enormous difference. And what you want in a talented civil servant is, is that ability to manage the the politics, but also to understand delivery and also to have the sense of ambition, maintain the status quo is, is not really good enough, That the world's changing too fast, that we're spending taxpayers' money and we've got to get the best value we possibly can for it. But I think that the British Civil Service is full of some very, very talented people.
0: But do they also need to be left in place long enough to make a difference? I mean, we talk a lot about how frequently ministers get reshuffled and changed, but actually that's often equally true of... Seen as civil servants as well. If I look at prison governors, for example, an area I know quite well, public sector prison governors are quite frequently moved around every two or three years, particularly the good ones, because they get put into the most challenging prisons. Whereas with some of the private sector prisons, you see governors being allowed to stay put for a bit longer and, and really change the culture of a place. And and more noticeably, if you look at private companies and, you know, the work that Jim Collins has done on, on excellent leadership, he often talks about Leaders who make a difference being imposed 10, 15, 20 years running a, a company. Is there a, an issue there?
1: There is There is definitely an issue there. And, and you know, starting with the politicians, obviously, that I personally, and I've said this to him, I thought Tony Blair shuffled his cabinet and his ministers of state far too often. And that did make things harder than it needed to be. I think you ideally you want to give people a task and give them the time to get it done. Obviously, if they're not hacking it for whatever reason, that's a that's a different issue. But but basically, give them time. And and in that sense, David Cameron, I think did rather better. He went to the other extreme of rarely reshuffling among officials. though, there is a bit too much turnover. There's a kind of goodwill, a good idea that you want to give people a variety of experience when they're young, they're young officials, and so you want them to be moved around a bit and see see the world from different angles. And there's a case for that. But you do want civil servants that they get one more senior to stay in role, not just because they can get better at doing that task, but because they can then be held to account for it. If you do a year and a half in some significant role and then you're moved, you don't ever find out and nobody ever finds out about you, whether you had or hadn't done what you needed to deliver the results. So I think there is a real issue about turnover, and I saw it it as worse in Pakistan, when I was working in Punjab, where officials in, in the 36 districts of Punjab were constantly being changed in the Ministry of Education. We, we had in one Department for Education that the secretary was, and this was quite normal, was changing four or five times a year. And I said to the chief minister, you will never do significant reform unless you appoint good people and give them the chance to get on with it. And he did do that, and it made an enormous difference. So apply that back into the UK the same applies. People have got to get stuck into something, learn their way in, and be around long enough to be held to account for delivering the outcomes. So I do think it's a a big issue.
0: How can you build incentives in to encourage civil servants to stay in post? I mean, they are free agents, they can move around, people want to get promoted or go to where the action is. How can they be encouraged to stay put, do you think?
1: I always thought, well, first of all, you can have some element of the reward system that rewards delivery of outcomes secondly i always thought that it would be good if you were a good civil servant doing a job really well and you were due for promotion if you could be promoted with all the consequences of being promoted but without changing job you're a grade five and you're doing a fantastic job you could be promoted now to grade three we'll make you a grade three but we want you to keep doing that for another year or so and that to me that doesn't seem too difficult to do
0: yeah well i think Particularly with major programme delivery, there's been a recognition that major programme directors and SROs aren't staying in post long enough, and that really needs to be a focus going forward. I mean, it's disastrous to major programmes to keep having new leadership when those programmes can go on for eight, nine, ten years, much longer than an electoral cycle or a normal civil service job.
1: Yes, and then if you take your your example of prison governors, which is a very important responsibility, and... You want them to be imposed long enough to change the culture of the prison and going back to irreversibility to change some of the structures, get the culture changed and see the results of having made the changes. So I think this is a theme that needs some I mean, something. If, if you were doing a big civil service reform, this would be one of the things you would think about.
0: In your most recent book, Accomplishment, you talked to an amazing cast list of people. You've already mentioned Justin Trudeau, but you talked to people like James Dyson as well and Gareth Southgate and David Brailsford, all of whom you you know. And I know you're very passionate about your sport, about cycling and football in particular. And there's a whole popular literature around inspirational leadership and thinking in sport applied mainly to business and the private sector. But are there lessons that public sector leaders could learn too from people like David Brailsford or, or Gareth Southgate, do you think?
1: Yes, there are. And to be fair to both of those people, there are things that they can learn from great government leadership. That's how I got to know them. Dave Brailsford read how to run a government and said, I want you to bring this set of thinking into Team Sky. So it works both ways. It's not just one way. Similarly, Gareth Southgate, I'm on a FA technical advisory board and it's made up of very diverse people, some of whom are from other sporting areas like rugby or cycling, but some of whom are people like me who aren't really into sports all, but are trying to bring the lessons to bear. So it works both ways. But, but the top sports people, Dave Brails would be an example, Gareth Southgate would be another, are obsessed about the details that make a difference, getting the evidence together, applying the evidence, learning rapidly. So if you, as I've done, if you go with Team Sky on the Tour de France for for a, a stage, at the end of the day, Dave Balesford and a handful of his key people will sit in the very beautiful team coach and they'll go through, in the Tour de France team, there are now eight cyclists, used to be nine. They'll go through each of the cyclists, what are their numbers show about their power output, how is their nutrition going, what nutrition do they need differently tomorrow, small tweaks, what, you know, if they've got a minor injury, what needs to be done then, for them to be ready for the next stage tomorrow. So very, very detailed. And then there's a the whole debate about what do we learn about the tactics of the other team today, of the other teams? What do we need to do differently? Is tomorrow a day where we're going to try and extend our lead or, or make a breakthrough? Or is it when we're just going to sit with the rest and and keep things on track and get a bit of a break? So it's the speed of learning. And Dave always says, uh, Dave Rails always says, the data informs, it doesn't decide. I think that's a really good phrase because we, we have a lot of, jargon about evidence-informed or evidence-based policy, and I'm in favor of that, but the evidence doesn't actually tell you what to do. It gives you the information on which you can make a decision.
0: And I think it emphasises the importance of having that data in the first place as well and having it sufficiently granular to be able to get a real grip on on what's happening in your organisation. And all too often, it feels like that's sometimes missing in, yes. in the public sector. Yeah, and
1: the top sports teams are obsessed with data. The, the quality of the data they get on each cyclist, on, you know, you follow up soccer, the football teams now, the, the quality of the data they have on how things are worked and how often they get their fastest attacker against the other team's slowest defender or how often they get a two-on-one when they've got the ball. All those things are analysed. And I think I found back when I was working for Tony Blair that some civil servants were a bit sceptical about data and it was all going to be too expensive, but it makes such a difference when you get good quality data because you can really do your job much better. And the 20 years since then, the quality of data and the availability of it and the the relative cheapness of it is all Mm. transformed. I think,
0: yeah, as we've seen with the pandemic actually over the last year, amazing real-time data on all sorts of aspects of human behaviour. and
1: Yeah, and you'll know in the prison service that I was under the impression that prison governors often now had data which were kind of lead indicators that a situation might be getting critical and then they can act on it before something goes wrong. To that kind of I think day. I
0: think Ministry justice has certainly been started to use data scientists to help governors to spot things like yeah. the, the prisoners who are most likely to get involved in a violent incident or to start to spot as you're saying when when trouble may be brewing yeah two final questions if I may so in your book how to run a government you, you set out 57 different rules to follow if I had to ask you to pick just the top two or three of those 57. I know it's a it's a difficult question, but yeah. what, what, what do you think they would be?
1: There were six or seven chapters, and I came up with 57 because when I was at university, I wrote an essay about the foundation of the Heinz Company in North America and 57 varieties. So it was just an arbitrary number. But look, the critical things are have some ambition and stick at it and don't let the sceptics put you off. There's always people saying that's going to be too difficult or – shouldn't be doing whatever and that applies in your personal life as well as in your job so that seems to me fundamental and then secondly now you're sticking at it building those routines that we were talking about earlier in this conversation and having the data each time the routine comes around to review to see what what's working and what isn't working and to make adjustments as you go and then so that's three and then the fourth one will be the idea of starting with a guiding coalition and building outwards ever widening circles of leadership so that It doesn't become just a technical exercise. It becomes a movement with a moral purpose. And a final
0: question. You've you've worked with a huge range of leaders over the years in many different countries. An unfair question, perhaps. But of all the ones you've worked with, who do you think delivered the most in terms of real and sustained improvement for their citizens?
1: Well, you and I worked for Tony Blair, and I loved that time demanding, though, of course, it was. And I do think that he delivered very significant public service reform, change and improvement in health education and crime reduction and even getting the railways to run a bit more reliably. So I think he was very good. But actually, if I had to pick one, I would choose the chief minister of Punjab I worked with between 2009 and 2018, who was a force of nature. When I first met him, we started our education reform and later extended it to health and water. That nobody, not one of his officials wanted to do anything radical. And just by sheer force of will, he got them working on it. And we built, I built with some of his colleagues, the routines, the data systems. So on vaccinations, for example, this was long before the pandemic, getting basic childhood vaccinations done on time on standard. We designed a whole new system for doing that across a province with 110 million people. And he was absolutely fantastic. And it was the great thing to see was that at the beginning, there was literally him and me saying, yeah, yeah, you could do that. And at the end, there were hundreds of people who thought this was a fantastic experience to have been through. And the data on health and education was radically improved over that time. So if I had to pick one, I'd pick him out. And it's Shabazz Sharif, is that his name? Yes. Is right? Yeah, the elected chief minister of the Punjab. Yeah, yeah he's not, he, he finished in 2018, but he, he was very courageous in what he was prepared to say. I remember him once it was a, a stock take on water and he wasn't happy with what he was hearing and he could get angry and he banged the table and he said, just wait a minute, wait a minute. He said, in 1947, Germany had been flattened by the war. Japan had been flattened by the war and we became independent. And all these years later, look at Japan, look at Germany and now look at us. Why do you think those two countries are so much more developed and wealthy than we are? Do you think it's because Pakistani people are less talented than Japanese or German people? I hope you don't think that. It's something to do with the way we run the province. And then he went back to them. So see you know what I mean? He, his, his ability to to express the moral mission of state building, as he called it, was, was awesome.
0: Great example to finish on. Many thanks, Michael. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thanks for all of your reflections on delivery and the role of leaders in it. It's been great to talk to you and good luck with it. Good luck with your next project and good luck with the book as well. Thank you very much, Justin. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. We'll be back soon with more insights and analysis. But if you've enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you could rate and review it in your podcast app. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor. This was a Tempo and Talker production for the RSA. We are the RSA. We enable the
1: game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms and create impact where it's needed most. Visit the RSA.org approach to find out how. And let's make change happen.